Well, we are really just at the beginning of our study of this letter, and it's already been very, very glorious and very enlightening. Um, it's interesting, I think, in, uh, in the book of Ephesians that such a glorious passage as verses 3 to 14, which are all one sentence in the Greek, we've talked about this, it's one sentence, but this is our third sermon on that one sentence, uh, this really long run-on sentence from Paul that's just cascades glory after glory of the grace of God and his church and the plan of God for his church. Uh, all of these wonderful things uh, that come to us express the love and the grace of God in terms of family relationships, loving relationships. It's a little ironic, isn't it, uh, that uh, this is a very theologically weighty passage. Massive weighty doctrines of Christianity are in this passage, doctrines of election, doctrines of predestination, doctrine of the God's will and his purpose for eternity. And, and almost none of those things, when you say doctrines of, seems very warm and fuzzy. It is, it is this very sentence that so many people would point to God and say, gosh, that just sounds like kind of a cold and calculating God who's manipulating things for his own purpose. Not so. Not so as we've seen. This is all about relationships. This is all about the God who created the universe and everything in it and all who dwell within desiring to bring them into a loving family relationship with himself. That's what's going on. It's the electing love of God and the gracious care and purpose of God that he's caring for us and that what he began he will complete until the end. That's what's pictured here. That's why it all falls under the heading of praise God for these things. He's your father through the work of Christ his son who's your brother. And God now dwells within us by his spirit. It is glorious and it is warm and fuzzy. And it is powerful because the warmth of God and the love of God and the care of God will endure and bring us to him face to face. That's what's kind of going on in this whole sentence. And I say that because we're kind of wrapping up that sentence this morning as we look at verses 11 to 14. But before we get there, I want to I instill, I want to begin with two basic, never-changing concepts that we find in Scripture. I want us to have these in place because if we have these in place, it'll help us then to understand what we're reading in verses 11 to 14 in Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. And the first basic, never-changing concept is this. It's about God's possession. God's possession. God has chosen a people to be his possession. And he considers his people to be his people whom he inherits. Psalm 33 verse 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people who he has chosen as his heritage. Now, what notion do you think the psalmist, what nation do you think the psalmist has in mind? Well, it's his chosen nation, Israel. He chose them for himself out from among all overs to be his heritage, to be his possession, to be his inheritance. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20, we read, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. 
God considers the people whom he has brought out of bondage to be his own inheritance. If you're not familiar with this concept, I'm, I'm reading these things to you today so that you'll get familiar with this concept because it's scriptural. Moses reminds God, you probably know this story, of this same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 9. When God wanted to destroy Israel in the wilderness because they had fashioned a golden calf to worship as an idol in place of him, Moses begged God, begged God, do not destroy them saying this, for they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. You see, Moses understood, as we must understand, that God elects people unto himself. He brings people to him because he wants to love them and care for them. And the right response is to, to love him and to worship him. So whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, God has chosen a people to be his own, to be in relationship with. That was the first. The second basic never-changing concept is this. It's God's glory. It's God's glory. Because God is glorious, for the reasons that we read in Psalm 8 this morning, for all the reasons that we've sung this morning and the things that we've prayed, because God is glorious, everything he does is a display of what? His glory. There's no display of sin or wrongdoing or falling short when God does things or when we look at God. He's glorious. And so everything he is and everything he does is a display of his glory and his entire purpose is in this, that he would reflect his own glory. It's right that he should do so. We should see God and we should see him as glorious. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 43 relates this. These are the words of God to the people. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You see, God created all who called upon his name, all of us, for his glory. That's our purpose. In Jeremiah verse 13, chapter 13, we read, I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. In the Old Covenant, God called his people Israel for his glory. God redeemed people. That's, those things are so tightly tied together. The redeeming of people and the glory of God are so tightly tied together. Remember how God rescued his people from bondage in Egypt? And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Exodus 14. God's glory is on display, particularly in the people that he redeems for himself. And this is true in the New Testament under the New Covenant as well. Remember Jesus' words in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 27? He says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? He's contemplating his going to the cross. And in prayer to his father, he, he asks these things. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? He says, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. 
for this purpose of redeeming a people, I have come to this hour. Father, he says, glorify your name. And then a voice from heaven, I have glorified it. He's referring to his son coming and living this perfect life which reflects his glory. And I will glorify it again through his sin-atoning death and his life-giving resurrection on the cross. Jesus came to redeem God's elect for his purpose to the glory of God. Now when we read the opening of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, these two basic, never-changing truths about God come into view. He is the one who has chosen a redeemed people to be his own inheritance. We usually look at it the other way around. We're going to inherit something, aren't we? Yes. Uh, We're going to inherit eternal life and wonders of salvation and all the blessings of heaven. But there's another way of looking at this. That's why I want to lay this basic, never-changing foundation in place that God sees his saved people as his inheritance. And his redeemed people prove him to be glorious. We're like little statues of his redemptive power and glory. We reflect his glory because we are now the glory of God, having been redeemed by him. Not our glory, his glory. Think of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, as a photograph. A photograph in words. Paul has taken a snapshot of God and us, his people, the church. And we are looking, all of us, we're looking at this picture. Look, pick up the picture, and we're looking at it. And who's the first person in the group photo that you're going to look at? Come on, you know who it is. If you're in a group photo, and you pick it up, and you look at it, you're very, you're very sly. You don't, you don't give a hint that this is what's going on. But you're trying to find yourself in the group. How do I look? Where am I? Oh, there I am. I found myself. Come on, be honest. We're scanning the photo to find ourselves. We want to see how good we look in this photo, right? Well, when I look at myself in this photo, I look great. When I look at the picture of verses 3 to 14, and I find myself in there because I'm in there, I look great in this photo. I have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. I have been chosen by God and adopted as his child. There's a smile on my face and a song in my heart. I even look smarter in this photo. Yeah, smarter. I have wisdom and insight because God has revealed his plan and his purpose and his will to me. And once I, once I see how blessed I am, once I... You know, the excitement dims down just a little bit. Once I get a little bit settled in all the excitement, I can finally look at the rest of you in the photo. Oh yeah, there are other people in the photo. I see them now. Hey, you guys look great too. What a good looking bunch. Because you have been redeemed through Christ's blood and your trespasses have been forgiven and all of us together are being made holy and blameless. You look good. How are we being made holy and blameless? In Christ. I mean, you can't even, you can't read these verses and miss that. Everything is in Christ. And then together, after we've all found ourselves, and we've looked over here and found Lydia, and looked over here and found John, and we're looking around, we, you know, we, this is just the greatest picture that we have ever been in. 
This is the picture of all pictures. And Paul wants us to see that. In Christ, we look great. We're blessed. He wants us to see that so that we'll bless God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's how the sentence begins. It's our instruction. Bless God. Praise God. Here's why. He wants us to thank God for what he's done for us in Christ. And that's right. And then there's more as we grasp this perspective. Our perspective of all the things that God has done for us in Christ, we finally settle down just a little bit, just enough to look at the rest of the picture and see who it's really a picture of. You and I are in the picture, but it's really a picture of God. Paul has painted a picture of God. Paul wants us then to gain another, deeper, more lasting, more glorious perspective of what's in this photo. It is a picture of God and His glory. We need this perspective so that we will praise Him, which is Paul's goal in this entire passage. Verses 11 to 14, what we're looking at this morning, are the final touch on that picture. And they will round out the whole vision of God and his inheritance and his glory so that we will rightly praise him. Let me read one more time. I'll begin in verse 3, verses 3 to 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in earth, in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. By his lavish grace, God has blessed us, and every blessing from God comes to us in Christ, because God's plan is to sum up everything from his election of us before the foundation of the world to the day we stand before him holy and blameless, all things in heaven and earth in Christ. So let's just read quickly again verses 11 to 14, our focus this morning. And I want you to see that this comes in two parts. And I want to tip you off ahead of time that verses 11 to 12 are about Jewish Christians in the church. Verse 13 is about Gentile Christians in the church. And then verse 14 is about 
all Christians in the church, both Jew and Gentile. I want you to see that ahead of time. Let me read these verses for you. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So let me just point out what I emphasized in the reading. Let me point out Paul's use of pronouns here in these verses. Paul, through his use of pronouns, recognizes a distinction in the church that there are Jew and Gentile believers, but he also recognizes that ultimately there's a unity in the church, whether Jew or Gentile, all are united in Christ. So in verse 12, the we who have obtained an inheritance and the we who were the first to hope in Christ are the same we. They're the same group of people in the church. They're the Jewish Christians in the church. And Paul counts himself among them. In verse 13, the pronoun shifts. Paul says, you. You also were sealed with the Holy Spirit. They are the other group of people in the church. They are the Gentile Christians. So Paul recognizes that there's a distinction between Jew and Gentile believers in the church. Because the Jew and Gentile believers in the church have recognized that distinction as well. But... Paul emphasizes for them their unity in Christ in verse 14, where the pronoun shifts again. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance, both Jew and Gentile, until we take possession of it, both Jew and Gentile. So all Christians, whether Jew or Gentile, have the same inheritance and are sealed by the same Holy Spirit and are all to the praise of his glory. I just want you to see that ahead of time. Why is Paul doing this? Why is Paul doing this? Well, one of the challenges in the church in Ephesus is the Jews' acceptance of the Gentiles in the church and the Gentiles' acceptance of the Jews in the church. Why? Because we know historically that the Jews were chosen out of all other nations. Who were the all other nations? The Gentile nations. That's what we used to call them. And so the Jews were said, don't, 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 don't mix with them. They're a dirty, profane, nasty people, those Gentiles. You are holy and unto the Lord. And so you do not do business with them. And so for centuries you have Gentile people knowing the Jewish people as people who look down upon them. <laughs> they don't like us. They won't have anything to do with us. We don't care. We're bigger. We'll do what we want. And so you have, you have this mix. And then you have, you have people from both of these backgrounds hearing the gospel, coming to faith in Christ, and being united in the church. And though they want to love, they're having to learn how to love. Because they still see one another as Jew and Gentiles, though they're Christ, Christ people in the church. And so here's what, here's what Paul's going to have to try to coach them to get over. Paul's going to address this challenge head on in the second half of chapter 2. So I'm not going to address it all here. But this is the reason that he's, he's doing this. Here he's anticipating that conversation. He's laying a little bit of, a little bit of unity groundwork in the church beforehand. He's sowing the seed of Christian unity in the church and he's going to develop it later. But it's already begun and it's, it's actually a well-placed anticipation because it, it reveals a little bit more of the plan of God. 
In verse 10, just before this, Paul just declared that God's plan is to unite all things in Christ, right? That's, that's the end of the world. He's going to unite all things in Christ. And so the first stage of that plan is to bring Jews to saving faith in Christ, verses 11 and 12. And the second stage of that plan is to bring Gentiles in to saving faith in Christ in verse 13, which means that both are in Christ. Both are united together in Christ. We understand from the shape of Scripture the primacy of the Jews in God's plan. He began with his called-out nation. He chose the Jews. And it's a picture of him calling sinners out of, among other sinners, to be his own people. So we see this in the, we see this in the plan of God. There's, there's really nothing new here to shock us. So let's zoom into each of these sections first, verses 11 and 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, in him, in him, it's, he says it over and over, don't be annoyed by it, it's glorious, right? In Christ is how this happens. In Christ, verse 5, God chose his elect in Christ. In verse 6, he predecided to adopt his elect as his own children in Christ. And now in Christ, we have an inheritance. That makes sense. And it's a sure and certain inheritance. You know, I don't know if mom and dad, grandma and grandma are going to spend all the money before they pass on. I don't know if there's going to be an inheritance there. But there's going to be an inheritance here. Because it has been predestined, predetermined, predecided by God Himself. And God Himself will bring it about. It's a right inheritance according to God's own counsel. You see, God, God counseled within Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is a good inheritance. And it will happen because God has decreed that it will. And there is no power that can stop the will of God from coming to pass. It is a sure and a certain inheritance. Do you see how God is being pictured here? He is the sovereign God who does as he pleases. And all that he pleases is good and brings him glory. And what is this inheritance? Well, from our perspective, it's salvation from sin and death and every spiritual blessing and eternal life with God in the new heavens and the new earth and all of that to the praise of his glory. That is certainly an inheritance to be thankful for. But I think there's a bigger picture here for us to see. And it's based on the groundwork that we did in Scripture. We can say about our inheritance is that it's our, our, what we can say about our inheritance is that our inheritance is really God Himself. When we take all of the blessings and things He provides, what, what we really get is God Himself. We really receive Christ himself. What we get when coming to saving faith in Christ is God himself. And the flip side of that coin is that it must also be true that God himself gets us. Which is what he wants. God himself also receives an inheritance. It's us. Now you may be thinking, boy, do we get the better deal or what? Yeah. Yeah. But that's what's so glorious about this. We're not just us whom God gets. 
were us who have been redeemed by the blood of the Son. You see, that changes our value. We've been made something valuable and glorious in Christ. Remember all the verses I read a moment ago and add, add this, all of those things about being to the praise of God's glory. Remember all those verses when God rescued his people from bondage in Egypt and when he led his repentant people to the promised land, he gave them an inheritance, right? He gave them an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey, a promised land. He gave them that inheritance and, and, and this is... This is part of the song that Moses sang about the people receiving that inheritance in Deuteronomy chapter 32. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of his peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted inheritance. That's how God sees the redeemed. The inheritance that Paul is really pointing to is God's own inheritance. And here he's speaking of the Jews, like himself, who have believed the gospel and are in Christ. The Jews were the first to hope in God's promised Messiah. That was the hope of the Old Covenant. One is coming. One is coming. The Messiah is coming. The anointed one of God is coming. He's going to send him, and he's going to take care of us. And now those Jews who are in Christ are God's allotted heritage, his possession, his inheritance. That's what we see in this picture. And so they are, just as he willed, a redeemed people to the praise of his glory. There's no real surprise here. Scripture teaches that there has always been a Jewish priority in God's plan. We know it well from Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. It's what, it's what Paul reflected in his church planting methodology right here, right here in, in Ephesus. He went to the Jews first. And then he went to the Greeks or the Gentiles. Same thing. Now in verse 13 we have that pronoun shift from we, Jewish believers, to you, Gentile believers. Where Paul balances out the inclusions of the Gentiles in the church, look at verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The Gentiles did not hope in the Messiah. They did not believe the word of God, the word of truth. They didn't read the Old Testament about the living one true God. They worshiped idols. Artemis and Sybil, Isis and Dionysus, they practiced magic and observed omens and feared their fate at the hands of fickle and capricious gods who just liked to play around with them. And then 
one day, in the fullness of time, Paul came to town. And after spending three months preaching in the Jewish synagogue, according to Acts chapter 19, here's the story, he preached the gospel to the Gentiles daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Daily for two years. That's when they heard the word of truth. That's when they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and his ascendant to the right hand of God Most High. And they believed in him. How did that happen? How is it that Gentiles are now believers in the God of the Jews? I mean, think about that. They had all their gods, kind of the way people today have all their idols, their things that they, they think matter most. And then they hear this message, you should believe in this God. You should turn and believe in this God. I mean, you'd have to be pretty convinced, wouldn't you? It's a pretty radical message. I know, I know all of your culture, and you think all of the world believes in a panoply of gods all over the place, Think Roman mythology. I'm telling you there's only one. There's only one real God. He's the true God and he's the living God. And he sent his God to save you from your sins so that you might be brought into his family. He's a gracious God. He's a loving God. You want to know this God. You think of that happening in Ephesus. So Paul comes into town, spends two years preaching that. That's when they heard the word of truth and became believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. How is it that Gentiles are now believers in the God of the Jews? Because God had a plan. Paul just told us about it just a couple verses earlier. Because God had a plan. God chose these Gentiles before the foundation of the world to become among his inheritance a people for himself he predestined, he predecided that he would adopt them into his family. So that in Christ, Jew and Gentile believers from every tribe, tongue, and nation are equally in God's family. Paul's broken them apart just to show everybody the reason that it happened in this way is because that there was a plan and it began with the Jews and that's continuing with the Gentiles, but it's everybody together in Christ. Here's how the plan's working. They have the same inheritance, and they are God's inheritance in Christ. There are no second-class citizens in the church. Only brothers and sisters in Christ, brothers and sisters to one another, children of God. And at the moment of salvation, believers are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. That's when it happens, sure and certain. The gift of the Holy Spirit was promised, Paul says. And it was promised beforehand in the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit. The promise of the Holy Spirit was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. You see, in the New Covenant, every believer in Christ, at the moment of justification, receives the Holy Spirit implanted within them. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might be received, or so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. It's Paul's plan being worked out, being described for us here. Every believer has been blessed by God with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing comes to us in Christ, and in him, you who believe, have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit of God. Remember now that Paul brings the Jews and Gentiles into the church, the inheritance and the gift of the Holy Spirit together for all believers in verse 14. What does it mean to be sealed by the Holy Spirit? Well, Paul has a couple things in mind. The first is the idea of ownership. In that day, a a handheld stamped with a raised design on it would be used to mark property, to identify your ownership of it. The Holy Spirit is stamped into our lives to mark us out as God's people. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. Beautiful picture. We're owned by God, which is wonderful because God's protection comes with his ownership. What a wonderful thing. The second idea that Paul has in mind is that of earnest. Of earnest. The Holy Spirit is himself a guarantee of our inheritance in Christ and of us as his inheritance. He is the earnest down payment now that guarantees the complete payment when Christ returns. And the inheritance is more of the same. We want to see that. The Spirit is a limited presence of God with us now. We will obtain the full presence of God when Christ returns. More of the same. The fullness of what was promised. Just as just as we are a a partial possession of God's full inheritance of his redeemed people. But we're a guarantee that God will have his full inheritance in us. We want both to work. We want God to get his glorified inheritance in us. His plan was contrived by his own wise counsel. And he will bring his plan of uniting all things in Christ to its glorious completion by the power of his will, Paul says. He's repeating all of that. How do we know? How do we know? Because we have the Holy Spirit. The joy and blessedness we have in Christ in this life is just a small foretaste of being with God, being in his presence always in the life to come. What should we make of all this? Well, it's all, that is, we are all, to the praise of his glory. That's how Paul ends. He says it, he begins saying, praise God, and then three more times he says, all of this is to the praise of his glory. It's all to the praise of his glory. Think about that photo of the family of God again. Yes, being in Christ is clear and it's powerful. Even uh, eternal motivation for us to thank God for the many 
the making of us to be his own and the giving of us of his spirit and the making sure and certain blessed possession that we will be to him. All of that is wonderful. All of that we give thanks for. But the glory of our God deserves even more than that. He is to be praised for his glory. Not only for what he has done for us, but for who he is. That he would redeem sinners both Jew and Gentiles, through the sacrifice of his Son, reveals his power and his grace and his glory. His glory is for all to see, believer and unbeliever. His glory is that he is the one true living God, the creator of heaven and earth. He is the all-powerful God who does as he pleases. He is the merciful God who redeems sinners through faith in his Son and renders them holy and blameless before him. He has a plan, and he is bringing it about, and he will bring it to completion. If you don't know this glorious God or this plan, dear friend, abandon your plan. And run with all haste to God's plan. It's glorious. And you can be in the picture. The same way that the Gentiles are. You've heard the word of truth. That God sent his own son. To die on the cross for your sins. But death could not hold him. He was raised from the dead. And so all. All who place their faith in him will become children of God. Escape the punishment for your sins, God's just wrath, and an eternity in hell, and receive, receive, be received into the family of God, and receive all of the blessings of eternal life with Him. Run to that plan. Become a part of it by believing. Well, I'm all the way down if you're looking at the outline of the sermon this morning on the end just to try to wrap some things up. How do, we, how do we put all this together? How do we put blessing God to the praise of his glory all together? Well, in this one long sentence, Paul surveys the whole cosmic landscape. From eternity past to eternity future, he covers election, grace, love, redemption, atonement, the Holy Spirit, inheritance, Christ's reign forevermore. God chose to display his manifold wisdom to the world through a redeemed people, and they are Christ's church. That's what we need to see. This is far more than a Jesus and me passage. This is a broad and far-reaching plan of God for all of his creation. He is big in the picture. We are tiny in the picture. Nonetheless, together, we are the manifestation of his redeeming glory. Each faithful local church is an earthly embassy of the kingdom of heaven. The fallen world looks at the church to see what kingdom life looks like. Men and women, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, all coming together in love to worship and proclaim the reign of King Jesus. And we do that by the power of the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us, we who are in Christ. 
you see that there's no room for boasting. Yet prideful Christian is an oxymoron. We must completely humble ourselves before our triune God. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. I want to close by reading this one sentence uh, that we've spent three Sundays studying. Hopefully, its meaning, its weight, its glory are all the more clearly understood than when we began. And they should impact us all in at least three ways. I think we, as we read through this sentence one last time, we should, we should be impacted in these three ways. First, in worship. We should all be greatly moved to worship our God and His glorious grace towards us in Jesus Christ. He's lavished us in this. And the sentence began with our praising God in mind. How can we not praise Him? more sincerely, more lastingly, more gloriously than we ever have before. The second is encourage. Our hearts must be greatly encouraged by such a picture of God and us, his redeemed people. He has done this. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He made us his family in Christ. It is by his will, pleasure, and purpose that he has redeemed us to be his own treasured possession. Let that strengthen your faith and bolster your hope and make you courageous because that's the power of God in you. You have purpose in Christ, in the plan of God, for His glory. That is our reality. And thirdly, we should be impacted in dedication and devotion. This is a passage of great theological import. It reveals to us the mystery of God's election and predestination and will and purpose and all of it is relational. All of it is so that we would be family in Christ forever. God has made a way in Christ for us to be with him forever. He calls us his children and he is prized possession and the apple of his eye. And we call him our Father because he is in Christ. He's worthy of our love. Jesus paid the ransom price for our redemption in his blood on the cross. Our trespasses are forgiven in Christ and God's grace is lavished on us in Christ. He's worthy of our devotion. And we have the blessed Holy Spirit in us. He is doing the work of God within us. The work which God began, He is furthering until its completion. And what work is that? That we will one day stand before God and His Christ, holy and blameless. Yeah, us. Us. The Holy Spirit's in us. He is worthy of our personal dedication to pursue blamelessness. And our church's dedication to reflect the glory of God to the world around us. Let's hear those things as I read just one more time this sentence. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ Jesus might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in awe before you because you are glorious. And your glory is evident to us in who you are. The sovereign, all-powerful God who does as he pleases, knowing that it pleases you to redeem sinners at the price even of the blood of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we praise you and we thank you for your glorious grace which you've lavished upon us. And Lord, we, we long to be a fit inheritance for you, holy and blameless, because you will make us such. Lord, grateful that you have not left us alone, but that your spirit dwells within us so that we might pursue blamelessness and holiness that we might humble ourselves and live to your glory. Make us your church and use us in that way, we praise. In Christ's name, amen.